New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Life is simpler than we make it. Knowing this can encourage us to focus more directly on what is truly important and essential in life. Adopting a psychology, philosophy, or spirituality that supports and fleshes out this way of living can be learned. This provides the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Dr. Robert J. Wicks. Robert Wicks is a clinical psychologist and serves as a professor of pastoral counseling at Loyola University, Maryland. He's the author of many books, including Riding the Dragon, Bounce, Living the Resilient Life, Prayerfulness, Awakening to the Fullness of Life, and Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. Join us for the next hour as we explore the wisdom and insights that come with simple living with our guest, Dr. Robert J. Wicks. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bob, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, yeah, nice to have you here, too. Um... Let's talk about uh, the early period. Uh, when did you first? When when did you first begin thinking this way? When did that start for you? Well, I I think that it's been with me for a long time, but went unrecognized. Really, um, I realized in retrospect a couple of years ago that I had been living out of an experience that I had each summer when I would go up on a farm in upstate New York. I'm a city boy from New York City, but every every summer we would go to the family farm. We had two of them. One was inactive, and then there was still an active farm. And uh, I didn't think much of it as a child on the impact it was having. But then I noticed in looking back that the kinds of treatment that I would offer my patients, the places that I chose to work, like Amish country, uh, off the Lincoln Highway, out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, the way I live now on an acre of land in a little house uh, with a pond in the back. Uh, slowly but surely, I began to realize that even though I work with physicians and nurses and people who are fairly sophisticated, most of my work is the prevention of secondary stress, the pressures experienced in reaching out to others, Despite all of that, there's a simplicity that has remained with me ever since those childhood experiences. The, uh, in the early part of the book, you talked about the three calls. Mm-hmm. Can you illuminate us? About what are the three calls? Yes, I think there are three calls in life that we need to meet, and uh, they come at various points. The first is a, a call to self-understanding. And uh, this, this whole belief that I have is true ordinariness is tangible holiness. 
that when we're transparent, when we're ourselves, uh, life is simpler and it's less exhausting. We're not putting up faces. We're not taking roles. We're simply ourselves in all situations. So I think the first call is really finding your word or finding your name. You know, in scripture, people are called, Abraham is called to become Abraham, the father of his people. Sarai is called to be Sarah, a woman filled with new potential. The whole sense of knowing your identity, your charism, your gift, your your center. And when you meet people like that, it's wonderful. I I had a chairperson who was um, a Lutheran minister, and when he was done being chairperson, he he said, I'm going to pass the torch on to you. And I said, that's wonderful. He says, and... uh, he surprised me because he was he was very very good with the funds, which meant no nickels went out that shouldn't. You know? <laughs> so he said to me, he surprised me. He said, "Let's let's go out uh, to eat together. I think we can justify that." And I said, "Jack, we're going out for dinner." He said, "No lunch, Bob. Lunch." <laughs> and we went out and we sat by the table. And I said to him, "Jack, I said, uh, why don't you say grace?" And uh, and I'm Catholic, so we tend to say grace at one one decibel. He booms out this grace in this restaurant. People put down their knives and their forks. There was a couple in the corner that I think were planning on having an affair. They changed their mind. Uh, <laughs> he, he just was amazing. And, and when he finished the grace, he said, I think we thanked God properly, don't you, Bob? I said, yes, Jack, and I'll never ask you again. <laughs> but he was simply himself. And that sense of ordinariness, uh, I think, was born in watching people live in the country where you, you couldn't put up faces. And, uh, and I still see people wasting energy on all the defenses, all of the ego involvement. And when I wrote the book, I wanted to speak about three calls, and that's the first call. The second call is a little different. And I noticed that, let's say I'm passionate, that would be my word or my name. Well, I noticed at some point that, in fact, the passion was really being intrusive in people's lives. I'd be have mouth, will travel. I'd get in people's way. And I realized there was a second calling. And the second calling was to prune or surrender. In other words, not take steps forward to really grasp your name, but steps backward into your shadow to find a balance for that name. So in my case, if it was passion was my name, then then gentleness would be the buffer. So the second call is to surrender or pruning. Then the third is the most mysterious call of all. It's it's a call to transformation. And it's when all of a sudden you feel this calling to really make your second word your first word. So that what we're speaking about here in my case would be I'd focus on gentleness rather than passion. Now, does it ever happen? No, your, your, your charism is pretty well set in life, your, your central trait. But by focusing on that second word, by surrendering in a different way to this, this see, it's, it's almost like a leap into the darkness. As one spiritual guide said, you know, you can grow spiritually by taking little steps, but at some point you can't cross a chasm by taking little steps. You must leap. So this third calling is a leap to open yourself to look to, to your traits and gifts that are not at the center. So self-awareness, surrender and pruning, and finally that mysterious transformation. Uh, let's, go, let's go back to the name part uh, mm. and the importance of that. So so my name is Michael. Right. Um, 
and, and I've done, it's like I know, you know, Michael came from the, the, uh, the ancient Michael, right? You know, like unto God. Sure. You know? And of course, Michael the Archangel. Right. Uh, I feel an identity with, with, with Michael. Right. So what does that mean, actually? What is that, what is that, what is that, what is that determined for me? Well, I think it, 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 first of all, you have to be careful with, with the name you're given, because don't forget, we're given a name by our family. We're given a name by society. Yes. We're given our name by a culture. And I think to really understand what our true name is, to really move is using, again, the biblical image from Abraham to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, a woman filled with new potential. We have to be willing to see our name in a new way, in a way that has greater potential. It's what in positive psychology they call today signature strengths. What, what, is, what are those signature strengths that Michael has? I think once you begin to look at that, then your name becomes richer. And you have looked at it by just what you shared with me. You said there, there's more to this name than, than, than initially I, I knew as a child. Sure. So you've done that search. And, and the suggestion is that, that we should do that search and find out what that name truly means. And of course, I've been, having been raised Catholic, I have a confirmational name, mm-hmm. which is Anthony. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure I had much, uh, I don't know, you know, like that was my name given to me by my parents. Right. And then it was confirmed. Right. Uh, but I've never thought too much about Anthony. Yeah, well, I, it's funny. I took a, a, when I took my confirmation name, Francis, I did think about it because it was my uncle's name. And there were traits about him that I dearly loved that I wanted to absorb and I felt would carry me further in, in, in my, my goal to blossom, not just for myself, but really more for compassion for others. You see, when you become truly this ordinary or extraordinary person, it really is for others uh, because you have freedom within you. You have space within you. you. You're not always chasing your ego and think of what space it offers others. I think it was Frederick Buchner said that, and people may forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. When you're ordinary and you have this simplicity, then people have the space to be themselves. So that, that ordinariness is often uh, very difficult to find in a fast-paced society that we live in. Yeah. Uh, and that's why silence and solitude is important, so that we can lean back from that that pace. I mean, so I, I, I think that we're almost like gargoyles on roller skates a lot of the time. You know, we're just chasing ourselves and chasing ourselves. And, uh, and I, I think that, 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 that contemplation and meditation and mindfulness allows us to lean back in a way that we don't get caught in, in someone else's framework. So what, what do you have to say to someone who's, so what do you have to say to someone who's, who's, uh, in the middle of, you know, the, the pace, uh, what do they do? How do they get off the, the fast lane and into the offering? Well, first, when they first recognize they're on the fast pace, already the first gate is opened. So that's lovely. The second is to find crumbs of alone time that are already in their life. You see, often we see interruptions 
as nothing more than a distraction from our activity. We see a walk to the bathroom as nothing important, just a trip. We see sitting back with a cup of coffee. Well, everybody does that. It's no big deal. I think being sensitive to, to crumbs of, of alone time, time that we can spend in solitude or even if we're in a group within ourselves, that's the first step. Uh, once we do that, then we begin to recognize that a little silence and solitude is not a small thing. Like driving in a car can provide that opportunity. Yeah. The, the first impulse is to turn on the radio. Uh, but, but if you didn't do that, let's say, if you gave yourself a chance uh, to debrief, to, to, to slow down. Physicians, I, I spoke to the, the physicians and nurses at Walter Reed Army Hospital. And one of them said, you know, I'm just, I, I wish I could just take a gallbladder out instead of cutting people's legs off. And I said to him, uh, well, when you go home, do you go into the house right away? He says, well, of course I do. I said, well, take a walk first. Give yourself that space. When I was in Cambodia working with the English uh, helpers trying to rebuild the country, uh, help the Khmers rebuild it after years of terror and torture, one of the Buddhists said to me, you know, there's a young man who goes into the hospital to help the wounded because the mines in the fields are plastic. And even after they clear a field, when there's a flood, the mine moves back and people get their legs blown off and he has to minister to them and he's upset. And I said, well, what after he finishes his rounds with the patients, what, what, what happens in his meditation before he gets in the car to come back home? And she looked at me nonplussed and she said, geez, I, I never thought about that. And here was a Buddhist, Buddhist nun didn't think about it. So it's amazing. I'm speaking with Robert J. Wicks. He's the author of Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. My name is Michael Toms and you're listening to New Dimensions. guest is Robert J. Wicks. He's the author of Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. And if you'd like more information about his work, you can go to his website, robertjwicks.com. And Wicks is W-I-C-K-S, robertjwicks.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So, Bob, um, the first part of the book, you have Know Who You Can Be Now. So let's, where do we go? Where, what do we know, how do we know who we can be now in this moment? I think that, again, the whole sense of taking the space for yourself to understand yourself, um, see what, in fact, is giving you great joy, see what's bothering you. 
In other words, taking a little time with yourself. I, I think this leaning back out of, out of the activity of the world is not something that's a luxury. Uh, it's something that's important. Uh, one of the greatest gifts we can share with others is a sense of our own peace, but we can't share what we don't have. When you, when you begin to really take ownership of where you are now, and it doesn't matter what age you are, uh, you not only open space within yourself, but for others as well. So that takes uh, taking time for yourself. It takes having a good circle of friends. I'm convinced that you need four types of friends uh, to really not just survive, but to thrive and to help others to thrive. The first, you're not going to like, so I'll give you a heads up. <laughs> it's the prophet. No one likes the prophet. Henry Thoreau once said, if you see someone coming to do good for you, run for your life. The prophet asked the important question, though, what voices are guiding us? Who's pulling our strings? Who's the invisible puppeteers in our life? If people think that they're free, then they're lost. All of us abound in, in certain ways. So the prophet helps us. The second is the cheerleader. If you just have a prophet, you'll burn out. If you just have a cheerleader, uh, you'll, you'll be narcissistic and you won't grow. But a beautiful balance between a prophet and a cheerleader. And a cheerleader is a sympathetic person, not an empathic person. This is the person that, that when you call them up and say, you're not going to believe what he said to me, she says to you over the phone, I don't believe it. And when you tell her the story, she says, you're totally right. And he's totally wrong. And because you're humble, you say, well, I might have had some minuscule part to play in it. And she says, no, no, you're a saint. I'm getting on my knees now and praying that locusts invade his house. You know? <laughs> so the cheerleader is that person. The third is the harasser or teaser. Because on the way to taking spirituality seriously, uh, our life seriously, compassion seriously, we often do a detour and take ourselves too seriously. So we need somebody to tease us and harass us a little bit. And the final friend is the spiritual friend. And this is the Anamkara, the soul friend. This is the person who calls us to be all that we can be without embarrassing us that we are where we are. By having that kind of a community, by having a uh, what they used to call in the early Christian church a rule of prayer, what we might call now is a practice of mindfulness, all of a sudden you begin to see more and more space for yourself now and in turn space for others because it goes hand in hand. You mentioned Anamkara, mm. which of course is Irish. Yes. Yeah. So and you've had some experience in Ireland. Oh, yes, I had wonderful experience in Ireland, you know, giving lectures there and meeting people there. I've met some unusual people. One of the dangers in, in life is, is, is are people who support you, but in their support, after they're done supporting you, you don't know whether to go home or shoot yourself in the knee or the head, you know. <laughs> I remember on one of my trips to Ireland, I got there and the nun said to me, oh, you poor Sakya. And I said, sister, why am I a poor sock? And she said, oh, you flew all the way over here, you poor dear, you must be exhausted, God bless you. I said, well, sister, I took a week off before I got on the plane, and we had a little hoolie, a little party on board. You're lucky I looked this good, actually. She said, oh, but you be coming in here and putting your nose to the grindstone. You'd be killing yourself. And I said, well, I love it here in Ireland. I haven't, this isn't the first time I've taught here. I said, uh, I've taught here before, and the scenery is beautiful in Ireland, but it's not your best thing. The best thing are you Irish over here. You give me a kick, 
I mean, even your road signs, they're basically hints, you know? <laughs> right. So she said, but then you'd be going home and killing yourself. And I said, well, I'm going to take another week off. Well, then you'd be putting your nose to the grindstone. And I said, well, I'll be teaching at St. Michael's College in Vermont. I don't even know why they pay me. She says, oh, but then you'd be putting your nose again to the grindstone. I said, well, then I'm taking a long weekend off at Martha's Vineyard. She stopped and blinked and said, my God, you take a lot of time off, don't you? <laughs> so there are people that you meet, and, uh, and, and some of them are just hilarious, but they mean to support you. But you don't want to give your joy away. That's very, very important. It's one of the key rules in terms of keeping your vitality. Don't give your joy away. Yes, Yes, I think people people take it by, by supporting you and saying, well, what you're doing is tough. Like, I do darkness for a living. I mean, that's what I do. I work with physicians and nurses and the military, and uh, like I'll be going soon up to Dover Air Force Base where they bring the bodies in yes. and working on resilience. Um, I work with, with physicians, you know, who are feeling their backs against the wall because of lawsuits and... You know, I, I work with teachers that, that have to deal with adolescence. And as you know, adolescence is not a stage in development. It's a serious disease. <laughs> so all of these difficult things, but yet I love it because, again, it's, it's a calling. And, and because I do these things that I suggest to my readers in streams of contentment, not because of narcissism, but because you need to replenish yourself. Yes. Yeah, the interesting thing about Ireland too, there are caves in Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, and and clearly, and some of them are pretty are high. It's like uh, I think of uh, 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 Father Justine, Father O'Donohue. O'Donohue, yeah, Father yeah. John O'Donohue. Did you know John O'Donohue? No, no I knew of him, but I yes. didn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he lived right at the crossroads uh, there uh, where you go one way or the other way, right there in the crossroads. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I loved my time there. I was up to Northern Ireland recently to, to do some lectures up there. Uh, and uh, I, I must confess that, you know, you, you, you know, you have favorites as you go through uh, around the world, and, and the Irish are among my favorites uh, along with the, the Khmer people in Cambodia who've been through so much yet are still so generous. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the Irish is that there's a, com there's a community feeling. Yes. You go to the local pub and it's like you walk in and the, there's clearly a community that's like, you know, people are talking. It's very social. Well, it's a different kind of thing. I, I, dr I got, was driving and I, I passed the Burren. I don't know if you know about the Burren. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you have this lunar landscape. You have uh, Arctic flowers and tropical flowers. And it's, it's amazing. And so the first time I passed, I thought, wow. And then I got lost. The second time I passed, I said, gee, that's really neat. By the fifth time I passed it because I couldn't find my way out. Uh, <laughs> so I stopped by a farmer. And, you know, and he took off his hat and we chatted and this and that. And, and then he gave me directions. And as I pulled away, I thought to myself, wasn't it nice that he took out time for his day for me? And then I realized that's not what happened. He didn't take out time from his day for me. He made me part of his life. And that's the community that you experience in pubs and churches and yes. in the streets. It's a, it's a great, there were great people. There's right. no doubt about it.
And there's so much, there's so much of, of mystery in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I remember being, being seen the, the, uh, uh, round, um, circle of stones and, and it's, there's no exit or entrance. Yeah. So what, is, what is that for? You know, yeah. what does yeah. it do with that? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a sense of wonder and awe. Isn't, and isn't yes. that marvelous? Yes. You know, I, I, and that's, see, that's another difference. Abraham Heschel, before he died, he had a heart attack that he never fully recovered from. He was visited by a longtime friend and fellow rabbi, uh, Samuel Dresner. And when Jez- Sam came into the room, you know, Heschel sat up for the first time after his uh, MI, his heart attack, and he said, Sam, there's something I want to tell you. Uh, when I came to after my heart attack, I felt no anger, no sadness, no fear. I only felt gratitude for all the miracles I'd seen in life. And then he paused because he was still exhausted from the MI. And he said, maybe that's what I meant when I wrote in the preface to my Yiddish poetry, I never asked God for success. I only asked for wonder and God gave it to me. It's the perception that we have that makes the difference, you know, and, and that, that really can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. It's how we see things. Yeah. yeah I'm reminded of, uh, those octogenarians that I've come across in my life, and less actually septuagenarians, like Joseph Campbell, Bucky Fuller, yeah. they had a sense of wonder about them. They were always wondering. Yeah. And, and I always appreciated that sense of wonder. Yeah, Fuller in particular struck me. You know, he talked about how, you know, he, he, he never went according to, to, to somebody else's rules, but he could sense mystically where the world was taking him. And he said, you know, the things that I invented and all the discoveries, he said anyone could do them as long as they were willing to go with that flow. Yes. Amazing fellow. Right. And any time he talked about not following that, he said everything went wrong. Yep. Yep. He didn't follow yep. in that sense, yep. in intuitive sense, you know. Uh, so. Faithfulness, having some faith. Yeah. So it's important to have faithfulness. Yeah. I think faithfulness is much more important than success. I think when we're personally and uh, and professionally faithful, uh, uh, th- then then that's it. See, I think we most of us recognize recognize the challenges in life. Uh, number one, number two, I think we can diagnose the sources of those challenges. Number three, we can plan what to do about those challenges. And number four, most of us actually do something about it, which is important. And then after that. We need to let God take care of the residue. We need to let go. And people don't do that because they're into success. And success means that we, we outpace people. Uh, it's the tyranny of hope. We don't have low expectations and high hopes, but we have high expectations because we have low hopes for people. When I see people, I don't want them to have trust in me. I want them to pick up my trust in them. It's really a sense of what's important. And I think that faithfulness, if I focus on that rather than my ego and trying to succeed, wonderful things happen. Yeah, you mentioned letting go. Uh, you know, one of your, one of your uh, chapter headings is called Don't Let Go. Right, uh, right, right. Well, I gave a talk on letting go and in front of this big crowd, and then a woman stood up and she said, uh, I agree with you about letting go. And as soon as people say that, you know, the stone is coming, you know. So she said, however, and I thought, oh, here it comes. I can't let go. 
And I said to her, she said, I've tried. And I said, well, then don't let go. And she said, oh, that sounds very defeatist. I said, no, instead of letting go, make friends with. It's like the, the Buddhists speak about when they speak about the unruly children. You know, they speak about the fact that we need to welcome all parts of ourself home. You know, people say, well, I want to get rid of this. Well, where are you going to throw it? And in addition, our defenses are connected very much to our gifts. I'm speaking with Robert J. Wicks. He's the author of Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. If you'd like more information, you can go to the website, robertjwicks.com. That's robertjwicks.com, W-I-C-K-S. Or you can go there to go get there to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Robert J. Wicks, he's the author of Awakening to the Fullness of Life and Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. Bob, you've been to Cambodia twice. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the work you do there. Well, the, the goal was uh, to work with the English-speaking helpers from around the world who were helping the Khmer people rebuild their uh, country after years of terror and torture. The first time I was invited in, the, the goal was to speak on secondary stress. And I said, well, what's going on in, in the country? And they said, well, they're getting ready for their first elections. And uh, the UN is here. Uh, the place is semi-stabilized, but now it's getting dangerous because the king is back. He's running a slate. The puppet government put in by the uh, Vietnamese are running a slate. And even the Khmer Rouge, if you can believe it, are running a slate. So I said that, that the stress is high. So they said, yeah, we'd like you to come in and do a uh, workshop on secondary stress and maybe a little retreat on world religion spirituality because we have people from different religions here and they, they really need their, their spirit lifted. Uh, so that's the kind of work I do. Uh, when they evacuated the relief workers from Rwanda during their bloody civil war, I debriefed them. Uh, when I, I recently was in Germany with the U.S. Army, with people who had been caregivers for um, for uh, military personnel in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I speak on resilience. Um, and when I was getting ready to give the presentation, one of the uh, officers there said to me, before you get up to speak, I want you to know that in this room there are a lot of ghosts. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, there's nothing left inside them. So the goal that I have is to help them recognize that it's not the amount of darkness in the world that matters. It's not even the amount of darkness in their family, their country, or themselves that matters. It's how they stand in that darkness. And I then speak about how to develop a recognition of the dangers they have to face, chronic secondary stress that we call burnout, acute secondary stress, uh, that is also known as vicarious PTSD, uh, 
colleagues who are jaded and burnt out that will pull them down. Uh, uh, so those kinds of dangers. And then I help them develop a self-care protocol, uh, you know, how to, in a sense, uh, support yourself. And I write about that in Riding the Dragon and also my Oxford University Press book, Bounce, Living the Resilient Life. So that's one part of what I do. The other part is the integration of psychology and spirituality. How does psychology set the stage for metanoia conversion? How do we use psychology as you would use a plow in the field to, in a sense, um, bring our life alive? You know, it's sort of tied to the Arrhenius, the father of the church concept of to love God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole soul as the human person fully alive. So I use psychology in that way as well. So the people I would lecture to would be members of the military, um, people who are in relief work, in tough situations, people in full-time ministry, uh, corporate executives, um, people in education, um, and uh, of course, people in medicine. I work a lot with healthcare systems about their stress because it's tough times for healthcare personnel. Yes. There's a great story that you related about a soldier who was in Walter Reed, mm-hmm. who was, a, I think, a quadriplegic. Can you remember that story? Uh, I'm trying to remember. That you went in and saw him, and then you, I guess, went back and visited him a couple times, and there was this kind of exchange that occurred between the two of you. Yeah, those were tough times. And yes. Both there and at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda. Yes. Uh, the, it, was, it was difficult to, to work with the helpers because, like a physician said to me, if only I could just simply take a gallbladder out rather than cut people's legs off. Yes. It's, it's, it's a very tough situation. But I think that once they have that sense of mindfulness, things change. Like there was a position from Physicians Without Boundaries walking the streets of Somalia during the height of their starvation. And an interviewer from NPR, National Public Radio, came up to him and said, you know, Dr. Collins, how can you stand this carnage? I mean, the old people are dropping like flies and the little children um, they're dying so quickly, you're not even burying them. You're stacking them up in the corner like firewood. And he looked at him and he said, when you see this carnage on television in the UK and Australia and New Zealand, in Ireland and Canada and America, he said, you're overwhelmed by it, aren't you? And the interviewer said, yes, we are. He said, well, we who work in country feel the same, if not more, but there is one difference. And the interviewer who was fairly jaded because he had seen so many wars said, what difference? And the physician responded, you can't lose hope as long as you're making friends. That, I think, is a definition of compassion. It's having the perspective. It's realizing you're not alone. And it's being faithful in the way you can. I think for those who pray, for example, that's, that's a good illustration of why prayer is important. Because in prayer, we combine the limited efforts of us with the limited efforts of other people praying with the unlimited power of God. I think there's that sense, even if you're not from a theistic religion, this sense of of joining together and being together in meditation is an amazing strength. It offers us discipline. It offers us a help to faithfulness. It, It makes us realize that we're not in this alone.
Who's God to you? God to me, the image that comes to mind as you ask it is grandfather. I need somebody who be both gentle and kind, but clear. I think when people balance those two, if, you, if you're just gentle with people, then there's, there's no growth. It's narcissism. If you're just clear with people, you hurt them. It's cause narcissistic injuries, we'd say in my business. But with a balance of gentleness and clarity, uh, wonderful things happen. So I feel this acceptance and I feel these two things and the image that comes to mind for me is grandfather. You, were, you, you told some stories about Thomas Merton in the, in the, in yes. the book. Uh, one was, I think, a workshop that you attended or part of with uh, uh, Flavian Burns. Yes, yes. Do uh, so you remember that story? Yeah, Flavian yeah. Burns was, it was an amazing fight. He was my mentor uh, for, for a number of years and he was Thomas Merton's last abbot. Yes. And, uh, and he was just an amazing guy. He, he, when I sat with him one time in a mentoring session, I remember him saying that when we die, Bob, I really believe that we see the truth about ourselves at that moment. And he said, you know, Thomas Merton, I think, knew the truth. He wasn't surprised. He said, but you and I, Bob, are going to be chagrined. And I said, well, Abbott, Maybe chagrin is the word for you, but not for me, you know. <laughs> so he constantly wove in uh, Merton's, Merton's uh, simplicity, his faithfulness. You know, like people thought he was, you know, wasn't a faithful monk. He was a very faithful monk, you know. He, monks, some monks may look faithful, but they're just adapting. Merton would fight and kick and scream. And then when was, the word came down, he would follow. Uh, I just, uh, I also appreciated Merton for his sense of caring in a balanced way. He once was walking past a day room and he saw an old monk, 50 years a monk, looking down and he went in and he said, brother, are you okay? And uh, the brother looked up and he said, Father Lewis, he said, I think I'm losing my faith, my energy, my joy. And, uh, you know, if he said it to me, a shrink, I mean, what do you say to a monk of 50 years? Merton wasn't pushed off. He put his hand gently on the man's shoulder, smiled at him, and he said, brother, courage comes and goes. Hold on for the next supply. <laughs> yeah. Pacing and perseverance, and that's community. Right. Yeah, Merton was very special. Have you been to Yosemite? No, I haven't. Uh -huh. no, I haven't. No, I haven't. Uh, I... Um, I think I will go because I'm considering doing a book on Merton and Nowen, because uh, Nowen I knew personally. Yes. Um, and, and Merton, as I said, I had those connections through people who knew him well. Uh, um, I met a couple times with Dom Yudes Bamberger, and we talked about Merton. Oh, yes. And uh, he's, a, he's a tough old bird, Dom Yudes Bamberger. And he, when I'd mentioned Merton, he couldn't say much about Nowen because he had been Nowen's spiritual director, but about Merton, he would light up and say he was truly an extraordinary person. And coming from Bamberger, that's high praise indeed. Yes. Tell us who Nowen was. Nowen was a very interesting fellow. The, I met Nowen years ago when, uh, when he was at Harvard. Uh, I was in a bad way and I thought I'd go up and I wanted to talk to him about my new book that I was going to write called Relationships, Nurturing the Gift of Availability. And I came to see him and we talked about the book and he said, you know, he said, Bob, he said, you're practical. I mean, you know, availability is a problem. 
And so I changed the title to Availability, the Problem and the Gift and, and wrote that book and got it published. And, and as I was leaving, he said to me, but there must be a biblical image for availability from what we're talking about. And he said, pruning. That's why that's so predominant in my writing. He said, pruning, he says, it doesn't make something blossom less. It lets it blossom more fully. What he was speaking about is what the Whitehead spoke about in terms of an asceticism of crosses. You have to know which cross you're being called to carry and which one you're not. See? So this whole sense of the relationship announced started then, and it was wonderful. I even asked him about my prayer life, and he said, well, it's a big question. And, and I thought to myself, I gave him that look of Jacob and the angel. Well, I'm not leaving until you tell me. <laughs> and because I remembered he asked Mother Teresa, how could he be a better priest? And he said to me, well, what I would do is take out each morning a few moments, because regularity is more important than length. Read scripture, let it form a nest, sit there quietly. And that's what I do now. I get up about five o'clock get some coffee, sit in the silence for half an hour. Then my wife stirs, I get her a cup, and we both sit and chat. Uh, and then she goes off and prays, and I either go and exercise or say a few prayers myself after that. So it, it, the connection with Nouwen as a spiritual guide was, was, was very profitable. He was a fascinating guy, and he was a real person too. And I hope I can put that across in the book, you know, put him as a real model. The other thing I like about him is the gift of discretion. And I try to use that in streams of contentment. It's the first time I've revealed as much about myself. But discretion he had, and what it meant was he'd tell enough about himself so you could identify with him, but not so much that you got into him and not in yourself. So now, and whether he knew it or not, in small ways and in large ways, taught me a lot. Quite a, quite a fellow. I had a very... Uh special opportunity to meet him at a conference in Santa Barbara. And just, we just had some time together, you know, an hour or so. And I was, it was just so amazing. He was so authentic. Yeah. I was so impressed. And, and we talked about, you know, I, I want to come and do, do an interview with you at some point. And it never happened. But, yeah. but I remember that he was just, this, this was somebody I wanted to know more about. Yeah. And more yeah. from, yeah. yeah. So um, we're... Exploring Streams of Contentment, which is written by Robert J. Wicks. Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Robert J. Wicks, he's the author of Streams of Contentment, 
Lessons I learned on my uncle's farm. Bob, one of the things you said is you do darkness for a living. So what does it mean to do darkness for a living? Well, it means to deal with people that are constantly uh, surrounded by by things that are, are uh, traumatic, things that are difficult, um, things that are uncontrollable. And, uh, and the, the unique problem in secondary stress is that you're working with people who are normally the caregivers. You know, they're the, the, the ones who give perspective. If they're psychologists or counselors, they're the ones who give hope uh, spiritually if they're in ministry of some sort. They're the ones who give medical help if they're physicians or nurses or PAs. Um, so that it's a unique kind of darkness in the sense that it's those very people that society counts on for support. Uh, so working with them is, is an interesting challenge and a privilege. Um, you, you, you deal with them in a way where um, that somehow you try to help them understand their work as a circle of grace. Uh, as a way of somehow drawing from the very difficult situations they're in. And I will often question people as a way of helping them debrief on what the darkness has taught them. Because in darkness, we experience humility. And when you take humility and you add it to knowledge, you get wisdom. And when you take wisdom and you add it to compassion, you get love. But it takes a sense of perspective. Like recently, for example, was the uh, in, in Haiti was that terrible earthquake, and there was this uh, Catholic nun, this this Mercy nun who who's at Hopkins, an emergency room pediatric physician, who went over there and was surrounded by all this helplessness and horror. And working with children is especially difficult. And I said to her, did you have any teachable moments when you were there? And she said, yeah, many, but two I can think of. I said, well, what are they? She said, well, first I, I get over there and, uh, and, and I, one of the children had been, had, been, had been crushed, you know, in the sense that a wall fell down and a retaining rod came uh, shooting out, went through his groin and his leg and pinned him to the ground. And he said, I had to surgically remove it. But she said, I sensed he was very active as a child and I didn't want him to feel useless. So I put him next to me and I said, watch my doctor's bag, you know, so it doesn't disappear because it's expensive stuff in it. So he would watch it very carefully. Even at night when he went to sleep, he'd put his arms through the straps so that if somebody tried to take it, it would wake him up. She said, well, I was there about 12 hours and he was at my side. And all of a sudden I thought I haven't had anything to eat or drink. So I opened up a bag of peanuts from the plane. And he was looking at me, so I gave him some of the peanuts, but he didn't eat, it immediately, eat them immediately. Instead, he shared half with the little girl next to him. And she, in turn, shared half with the person, the little person next to her until the child at the end got one peanut. And she said, I learned from this little boy that you could be generous even when you're in a lot of pain. And she said, I had another little boy that was worse. I had to amputate his leg. And I would go in occasionally and give him a signal, a thumbs up. And if he, his pain was okay, uh, he'd give me a thumbs up. And then I'd check to make sure infection hadn't taken place. And one day I had a few more min minutes to spend. So I came and I sat down next to uh, him. And just as I sat down, another bus came in with children crying and screaming. 
And the little boy looked up and said, I don't need you. They need you. Go. And she said, I learned from him that there is a community that goes beyond even self-interest. So she said, I learned a lot in that situation. The work that I do is to try to help people to take care of themselves as helpers and to be open to the perspective that's possible when you, number one, have a self-care protocol, and number two, you have a regimen of mindfulness. I think both are important. It allows us to face the darkness. I was in New Zealand, and I asked the young priest out one year from the seminary what I ask all professional helpers and healers after about a year uh, out of training. I said, any teachable moments? And instead of pausing, he said, oh, I can answer that immediately. I was called to the hospital, but they didn't tell me who I was to see. And it was a little hospital, so I went anyway. And in the lobby, I saw this couple in the corner. He was crying and she was silent. I walked up. I said, I'm Father so-and-so. I, I don't mean to be intrusive, but did you call for a priest? They never gave me a name. And the woman said, yes, we call for you. And he said, well, what's the matter? He said, oh, we gave birth to twins. One was born alive, but the other was born dead. He said, I went down into the morgue with them and we stood around the little shrouded figure and we prayed and we cried. Then in like a resurrection experience, we went up the stairs to the neonatal intensive care unit and we opened the door and it was a total different scene. It was bright. People were laughing. There were mobiles hanging from the ceiling. And we stood around the incubator and we laughed and we cried and we prayed. But this time the tears were different. They were tears of joy. And I said, but what was the teachable moment? He said, you can't cry those tears of joy if you don't first cry those tears of sadness. See, I, I think it, it is true that, that how we stand in the darkness makes all the difference. And my goal is to sit with people, listen to the traumas and the pains, because they're realistic, and in the other hand, open the possibility for post-traumatic growth and spiritual insight and wisdom that would not be possible without the humility you experience in going through these things. One of the people that you referred to in the book you referred to was Kathleen Norris. Yes. Dakota Geography. Yeah. And I'm reminded of that as you're speaking. Yeah. I um, love that book. I thought that was her most spiritual book. Yes. I, she had a lot of other books that were religious. Yes. But that book struck me. You know, her theme of asceticism is making your world smaller so you can appreciate things in a greater way. Her sense of, of recognizing the importance of silence and solitude. Uh, her, her magnificence as a poet came through in such a spiritual way that it got around your defenses. I know I'm rigid and it certainly got around some of mine. So that was good. Yeah. And just her descriptions of... Dakota. She's such a great writer. She is. A good follow-up to that book is, is Maitland's book, A Book of Silence. I, I was impressed with her book. Uh, again, it gives you an idea of that silence just isn't the absence of noise. There's, there's more to it. Yeah. So let's talk about the self-care protocol. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I don't think we take care of ourselves enough. I, I think we feed ourselves spiritually and psychologically with whatever comes along. I, I think that that saint that died a number of years ago was right. You may remember her. 
Saint Irma Bombeck. Do you remember her? Uh, yes. Yes. She said Absolutely. that she thought <laughs> that any man that watched three football games in a row should be declared legally dead. <laughs> the reality of, of the whole sense of a um, self-care protocol was brought to me by a, a friend that I hadn't seen in years. And he called me up and I, we chatted for a while. And I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, well, I'm dying. And we were in our 30s at the time. And uh, I said, you're dying. He said, yeah, I have astrocytoma, a rare form of brain cancer. He said, my mother thinks I'm going to have a miracle, but Bob, when you're dying, you know you're dying. And I said, well, where are you calling from? And he said, Misericordia Hospital in Philadelphia. And I said, uh, well, I'm in Westchester, Pennsylvania now. I'm just a few minutes. Would you like me to visit? He said, would it be a big deal? I said, no. So I went over there and I got in the room and I was in the room 10 minutes and I knew that even though he was dying, he was still the same nut that I went to school with, you know. I was the steadying influence in his life, so that'll give you a sense <laughs> of it. And I said to him, what symptoms do you have? And I, I, he said, oh, a lot, but two irritating ones. One, I, I don't have, a, I, I can't hold my water, so I have to wear a diaper. And I don't have a short-term memory. I've been here for two weeks, and I remember absolutely nothing. And I said to him, that's tragic. And he said, well, why is that tragic? I said, because then you don't remember me sitting here at your bedside for six hours a day for the past two weeks. In response, he said something that I can't quite share on radio. But then he asked me a question that haunts me till today. He said, Bob, what good things are you doing in your life? And I gave him this list of accomplishments. And he said, no, not that garbage, the good things. And he said, what, when do you take quiet walks by yourself? And that may not seem like much. But depression and activity don't like to live together. If you take a short walk each day, it can have a major impact on your attitude. He said, what good movies have you seen and books have you read that pull you out of yourself? What museums do you belong with? Who's in your circle of friends? And what about the quiet time you spend each morning? He said, what about that? And when he said that, and he, he wound up dying several months later, I began to realize that no one was going to take responsibility for self-care if I didn't. And this was, wasn't just about me. It was about those that I serve. When I come to see you, you should expect the best from me. You should be able to get angry, be sad, be depressed, and know that my arms are open for you. To do that, you've got to take care of yourself. Uh, otherwise, uh, it just doesn't work. So that in this, the streams of contentment, I've pointed that out indirectly. I pointed it out more directly in Riding the Dragon and also in my other book with Oxford Bounce, Living the Resilient Life. It's very important. Resilience is, or our resilience range is formed by, by, you know, the gifts at birth, our DNA. It's formed by early childhood experience, but the range is maximized by motivation and knowledge. And what does it is by having the space in a self-care protocol. Bob, it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah. I've been speaking with Robert J. Wicks. He's the author of Streams of Contentment, Lessons I Learned on My Uncle's Farm. It's just a treasure. Uh, so I, I recommend it heartily. And if you'd like more information about his work, you can go to the website, and that's robertjwicks.com. That's Wicks, W-I-C-K-S, robertjwicks.com. You can also get there to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And my name is Michael Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. Thanks so much for being here. 
This is program number 3418. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.